This season of Smashing the Ceiling is brought to you by the Skylark Collective. Skylark is a new London-based network for women in podcasting, and this year we'll be hosting the inaugural International Women's Podcast Awards at the Albright in London. The collective exists to raise the voices of women in podcasting, both behind the mic and behind the scenes, and to showcase the work of women out there producing incredible audio moments through the medium of podcasting. So if you've got your own podcast or you're thinking of starting one, head to our website at skylarkcollective.co.uk for more information or follow us on socials at the Skylark Collective. Now, on with the show. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to Smashing the Ceiling with me, Naomi Mella. On this podcast, we love to showcase the lives of women who have achieved amazing things in their careers, those who've got a really cool or unusual job, and some who've just had a really interesting life. If you're looking for inspiration for your career, if you feel a little stuck or bored with what you're doing right now, or if you're in search of the road less travelled job-wise, then this is the podcast for you. Each week, I sit down with one woman to dig a little deeper into the how of it all. How did they get where they are? How did they pick themselves up when things didn't go right? And how their mentors, mistakes and motivations have led them to achieve the things they have. Hannah Roper is an incredible woman with a varied career forged out of a combination of inspiration and necessity. Not many people can say that they've worked as a teacher, a policeman, a country music singer and an entrepreneur. Hannah has worked in both primary and secondary education. She's founded a country music festival. She's been a Bobby on the beat and interviewed suspects and has released several successful albums. In the midst of all of that, she also survived domestic abuse and harassment at the hands of her ex-husband, also a police officer. Her life and career are quite extraordinary. It certainly hasn't always been an easy ride for Hannah. And as a survivor of domestic abuse, there was a time when confidence and self-esteem were certainly not the norm. She spent many years rediscovering herself, in the process finding her love for entrepreneurship and developing skills in business, branding, marketing and web design. After launching her company, The Female Creative, in 2020, she was named in Yahoo Finance as one of their top 10 business startup coaches in 2021. Hannah also recently launched her podcast, The Female Creative Talks, earlier this year, which is well worth a listen. This podcast does contain references to domestic abuse and coercive control, and I've included a couple of links in the show notes to helpful organisations if you might need. You might also have noticed that we are currently releasing episodes every two weeks over the summer holidays. That is a temporary measure while you are all on holiday and I have also been away, but we will be back to weekly episodes as normal in September. In the meantime, here's Hannah. In terms of my early life and and what I wanted to be, I wanted to be a jockey at one point. In my early teenage years, I was horse crazy I would spend all mornings on a weekend up at the stables doing all of the jobs that no one else really wanted to do just because I was desperate to have my own pony and I just wanted to be a jockey I wanted to be a rider of of some sort but didn't ever quite have the skills to get that far Um, but I've always loved music I've always wanted to do something with music I wanted to be a singer from a very very early age And I also always wanted to be a teacher. My mum has got photographs of me set up my bedroom when my my baby sister is, 
she's not that much of a baby anymore, but she's seven years younger than me. Um, so it was a very good playing size when I was kind of seven, eight, nine, ten years old. And I used to put her in chairs and on the floor and try and put pencils and pens in her hand. And, and I used to try and teach her Um she didn't really, she wasn't overly receptive to things because she was only a baby, but I'd always wanted to teach and just help people in some way. And interestingly, that that teaching aspect has really followed me throughout my entire career. It's, it's never left me. So my mum and my grandmother were both teachers. I think some people are just born teachers, aren't they? Like there's that thing of wanting to convey knowledge to other people and having the enthusiasm to do that and actually it's it's a it's a rare gift I think I think so and I I strongly believe that if you are a good teacher you can teach anything because you naturally when you are teaching and and I have my my teaching career began when I was um 18 and I was a learning support assistant in a secondary school but because they knew my aspirations to become a teacher, very quickly I took over substitute lessons and you had to learn really quickly. And I think that's something that people forget with teaching is it isn't just that ability to convey knowledge. It's that ability to take in knowledge and assimilate that information to be able to then turn that around quite quickly, pull out the key points and, and give that to somebody else and then check that they get it and check that how they're going to use it moving forward. So I started off as a learning support assistant and then covering um, various different lessons from food tech to maths to music to PE, although PE is not one of my strong points. Um, And when I went to university, I went to university to study music and I went to Camp America in two of my summers uh, that, that I was at university for because the first summer that I went to university and I don't know if anybody else has found this but coming home in the summer holidays and trying to get a job for two three months is so difficult and I really struggled in the first year I went and worked at a nursery school I worked in a shop I worked in a bar and I, it, I just didn't enjoy it I had no fulfillment and something for me that is really important is I go to work not just to earn money. I go to work because I've got to love it and I've got to enjoy what I'm doing. And that was instilled in me from from a very early age. So my second and third years at university, I went away to Camp America and I went, I I purposely chose a, a camp where the children, they came from inner city New York. It was a huge cultural difference for me. It was a huge culture shock. I learned more about myself in those two summers than I have in my entire life because suddenly I was thrown into a situation. I I was not the norm. I was very different. I was blonde-haired, blue-eyed. I didn't fit in. I had a very quaint British accent, which just stuck out like a sore thumb. I just loved the teaching aspect. But I also found that I was helping the other counsellors as well and being a bit of a sounding board and a bit of a, of a mentor. So that was a really great experience for me and just fueled that, that love that I had for teaching. When I came back, I then did my PGCE in primary education with music as a speciality. But whilst I was completing um, the school that I was teaching at previously as a learning support assistant, their music teacher up and left. 
So they needed a music teacher to cover. Um, I was actually able to go and work part-time as a secondary school music teacher. And I taught year seven, year seven to nine, plus a little bit of GCSE. Um, and I don't know if you remember music back at secondary school when you were in year seven, eight, nine. Um, there's a lot of random keyboard playing and a lot of wanting to just press the demo button. And they didn't want to be there half the time. It was different teaching GCSE. They wanted to be there. But at secondary school, you can't just teach GCSE. You've got to teach all the way through. So I actually changed direction and I and my PGC, I ended up doing in primary with a, a music speciality. But teaching in primary school was not what I thought it would be. Um, I felt really restricted. I taught because I loved teaching. I loved being around children. I loved being able to see them gain new knowledge and use that new knowledge. There just wasn't the freedom. And I think for me, a real turning point was when we were coming up to November the 5th and none of the children knew why fireworks night was fireworks night. There was no history towards it. There was no understanding. It was just an event in the calendar when everyone went off and watched the bonfire and there were huge fireworks displays. There was none of the historical element added to it. And when I wanted to put that in, I was told there was no room. There was no room in the curriculum. There was no time to teach that. And I thought, this is not, this is not what I wanted. So I um I got to a, a situation where I wasn't overly happily, overly happy teaching. I loved the children, but I felt very, very caged in. I didn't feel like I could teach for the joy of teaching. It was so strict with the national curriculum. So I had a complete and utter pivot and I became a police officer. I joined Hampshire Constabulary and I was a bobby on the beat and I was responding to 999 calls. And for some, it might seem like a really random career change. Dealing with criminals and dealing with children very similar in some ways. <laughs> I was just going to ask you actually, Hannah, with with that, when how did you make the decision to kind of make that leap and how did you pick the police as a, as a next employer? Like what was your pathway with that, I guess, in terms of transitioning from one to the other? Because you we mentioned you wanted to be a teacher for a long, long time. Teaching is in your blood, it's in your life, it's your skill set. Leaving that behind can be really difficult. And, you know, we often talk, I've talked to quite a lot of women on this podcast who've left one particularly vocational career to move into something else. Did you find that difficult? How did you manage that transition and pick what you were going to do next? I think at that point in time, I was in my early 20s and I didn't have, uh, I didn't really have any responsibilities. I was still living at home. I wasn't a mother at that point. My money was my own. So I did feel that I did have that freedom because I only had myself to consider to make that choice. Um, my grandfather and my uncle were both career police officers, both detectives. Um, so it was something that I had been familiar with. It was something that I had grown up knowing about. And again, I just wanted to help people. And I think the situation that I was in when I was teaching, and a lot of teachers, I think, feel this, is there will be some children that you will remember forever. There will be some children that their home life was really difficult, their social situation was very, very difficult, and you wanted to help them and you wanted to save them in some way. And you couldn't as a teacher. You had to be able to detach yourself. If I'd have taken home every child that I'd come across in my, my teaching career that I'd wanted to save, I, I would need a gigantic mansion to, to kind of be able to house them all. And I think that was part of my decision making. How can I help 
How can I help these children? How can I help these people? How can I help these parents that have become parents, but they still needed support? They were still in situations that, that they needed assistance and they needed help. So I saw the police as a way of being able to do that, to be able to do that. And as I mentioned, I felt really restricted in my teaching career and it took a lot of the joy out of it for me. And I thought to myself, if I'm going to change career now, um, then I, I just need to go for it. I just need to make that leap. If I left it another couple of years, I, I don't know what my situation might be like. And, and as it turned out, had I have left it a few more years, I would have been in a long term relationship. I would have been a stepmother at that point. Um, I would be on my way to having my own children and it would have made it a lot more difficult to make that that switch financially it, it was very much on par so I moved from working as a teacher into basic rate as a police officer and for a little while again I had that fulfillment I was helping people I was able to to interact with the public interact with the community be there when people needed me the most and there is a bit of a thrill and there is a bit of a buzz when you first join the police and you're going to, to those emergency calls. And I guess I didn't really think about it. I was too young to really think about it. Um, so I went into the police at the age of 24, I think it was. But the transition in wasn't easy. It takes quite a while for the application process for the police. But I had to still keep money coming in I had to still keep working so it was it was a real dilemma for me and I felt awful and I think I then really struggled when I went to that other primary school I never settled in properly because I knew I was leaving I felt judged um so I actually ended up leaving after the first half term and I had six weeks of unemployment where I lived off of my savings before I then joined the police um December 2006 I joined the police and at that point you had to go through two years of basic training before you became independent and I loved it absolutely loved it it was where I met my now ex-husband um so it was a real time in my life where everything changed I had a brand new career I had a new partner um I had a stepdaughter who was four when I first met her she's now 20 um so it was it was a huge change period in my life. And I did really enjoy being in the police. But I still always wanted more. And several years into being in the police, I, oh, I think it was two, three years after being in the police, I fell pregnant with my, my son. He's now 11. And that was another turning point for me. And I think this is something, this is something that I personally feel that women experience a lot. There are a lot of turning points in a woman's life because various things happen like becoming a mother or a significant life event and your whole perspective change when I when I was pregnant I didn't want to be out on the street anymore the week before I found out I was pregnant I was fighting a woman who was high on drugs and heavily under the influence of alcohol physically fighting her in a hospital room because we had to try and control her um and I, I couldn't, I didn't want to do that whilst, I couldn't do that whilst I was pregnant. And then after I had my son, I didn't want to put myself in those dangerous situations. So I, I transitioned into a new department and I became part of the prisoner interview team. And what that involved was spending all of my time in the custody block, purely interviewing the prisoners that had been brought in by the officers on the street, 
interviewing them, finding out their side of the story, doing the paperwork and taking them to court or letting them go. And I really enjoyed that because, again, I felt like I was more one-on-one with people. I got to know the solicitors, the legal staff. We would have repeat customers that would come in (laughs) fairly regularly that I would get to know. And I really enjoyed that side of things. And I think that, again, that nurturing side of me was able to come out and I was able to make those connections with, with people, which when I talk about that, I know some people think I'm absolutely off my rocker that I found real joy in in actually having these relationships and and communicating with with probably people that most don't socialize with and don't have anything to do with um but I really really enjoyed that I find that really interesting though Hannah because I think the thing with that and it's is that everybody has a story and quite often you know I've I've worked in homeless shelters over the years when I was a student and along similar lines everybody there has a story of how they ended up in the position that they're in and I'm not uh, equating homelessness and criminals but I think that what the point I'm making is that everybody has a backstory don't they and actually a lot of those people that you're meeting in that position are potentially there through no fault of their own in some cases or they've ended up there because of a series of circumstances life has happened to them as opposed to them choosing that path as it were did you find that when you were talking to people or what was your kind of experience of listening to those people absolutely and everybody does have a backstory there's always a pathway that that somebody's taken okay they might have taken a wrong turn as you say that might have been due to circumstance rather than than anything beyond their control and I think it was my way of helping it was my way of actually giving them a space for them to talk to me and explain how they ended up in in that position and why they made the choices that they made or why they weren't able to make choices and ended up sat in front of me um, in in a police station uh, across the table having, having their interview tape recorded just like you used to see on the bill, to be fair, um, with, with the tape Very light of duty, everything. I'm sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. And, and I think, I, again, it was that human connection. And I am, I'm a huge empath and I really feel what other people feel. And sometimes that was to my detriment because I would get too emotionally involved. But I also felt it was my strength because there were situations where I had the ability to help determine the outcome for that individual and had I shut myself off emotionally I could have taken a very cold view and put them through the criminal justice system and they wouldn't have received the help that they needed to be able to make better choices to be able to change their path so I think that's what I really enjoyed maybe enjoy is the wrong word that just sounds a bit weird but where I got a lot of um, satisfaction was actually being able to influence decisions to help somebody improve their their life and improve where they were going to go next and help make those right choices. So I, I really did relish that particular role. As with a lot of organisations, there is always change coming, and unfortunately, that role changed quite significantly and quite dramatically. So I had to, I had to move on and, and do something else. I was just going to say, I've heard lawyer friends describe the law as being a bit of a blunt instrument and that sometimes there isn't the flexibility to do the right thing as opposed to what is 
the necessary thing under the letter of the law. Did you ever find that sometimes you wanted to do something that you thought would actually help somebody more than what you were actually allowed to do in that situation, Hannah? Yes, I think especially when you do hear somebody's story and you do make that connection with them, uh, there are certain elements of the law that it is very black and white. It's you've broken the law or you haven't broken the law. And I think that's where I began to struggle at times. I still remember a a particular case that I worked on um, very quickly with the interview with this particular person, uh, this gentleman, I I realised my my gut, everything in my being was telling me that he was innocent and he didn't do this. And yet we had turned his house upside down. We had taken him away from his, his ill wife. But I'd had no choice in that process. It was something that, that snowballed in terms of you do have to follow these set procedures. You do have to follow these, these legal um, pathways to, to get to that point where you can say, do you know what, the evidence isn't there. The evidence wasn't just not there. He did not do it. And it was one thing that that stuck with me because he will relive that trauma. That was a traumatic incident for him. And could I have done something different? Potentially. In that moment, I acted on the information that I had in front of me. But I think I began to realise at that point, there was a little bit of doubt that started to creep in. Am I really helping people? Or am I following the rules, which means it doesn't matter who you are. If we've got something there, then we can come in and we can search your house. We can arrest you and put you in a custody block for for 24 hours. And for an empath, I started to struggle with that aspect. So I think for me, you don't make these decisions overnight. It was a little seed that had been planted. Is this really what I want to do with the rest of my life and have such an impact on people but not necessarily in a positive way and that was another turning point for me I'd gone from feeling I was really helping people really helping people that had taken a wrong path and helped them get back on the right path to almost causing such trauma in somebody's life that I don't know if they were ever going to recover from that and that's that's a hell of a thing to kind of carry on on your shoulders mm. God, I I really feel you, Hannah, because I think uh, I've I've I see a lot of what you're saying. I see myself in what you're saying with about being an empath and, and that just what you were describing there. I had like a bit of a physical, not a physical reaction, but like a, just quite an emotional reaction there of like I would find that so difficult to deal with, and the idea that you're causing trauma or pain to somebody who is innocent because of the procedures that you have to go through sounds so hard to deal with thank you for sharing that story by the way um but yeah it's I can understand why that would become a turning point for you so um what happened what happened next I mean I guess like where, oh, did, you, where did you go from, where did you where go, did I go? <laughs> um so because of a restructure that was going on naturally within the organization uh I went from just doing the interviews to becoming more of an investigator but work was being added to my plate and I felt like I wasn't being able to give my full self and my full ability to what I was doing because I started to become even busier. I started to become overworked. 
really stressed. I was dealing with victims on a on a regular basis, whereas previously I, I'd really only been dealing with the suspects themselves. And dealing with suspects and dealing with victims is a very, very different thing. And you have to deploy very different sets of skills and different styles of communication. So swapping constantly between victims to suspects to victims to suspects was actually really emotionally exhausting because you're constantly having to change yourself. And the way that the police was going through budget cuts, through staff shortages, is some crimes were not being investigated. Some crimes were not being given the attention that they deserved. And ultimately, regardless of whether it was a smashed greenhouse or a a burglary in the middle of the night, to that individual, everything was relative. That was the most traumatic thing that had ever happened to them. And yet I was having to say to victims, I'm really sorry, but we are not taking this any further. We are not going to be taking any action. I can't investigate this. I don't have the time to to be able to do that. And that was then another seed. I'd gone into the police to help people. Suddenly I'm I'm not helping people anymore. I'm not feeling that fulfilment. And The other thing that happened at that particular point in my life as well is I had a child and my child was was still very, very young. And I was also at that point, my my relationship, which later became my first marriage, had gone from normal to being uh, very abusive, very emotionally um, controlling, very emotionally abusive. There was also elements of sexual abuse in there as well. And as a police officer, how could I be suffering domestic abuse when I was a police officer? When I was the one that was the saviour, when I was the one that was going to people's houses to save them from domestic abuse, when I was the one who was putting the case forward to the Crown Prosecution Service to prosecute a domestic abuser. The, The mental anguish and turmoil that that brought to me, I don't think I've ever fully recovered from. And I think it will be, it will take a long time for me to... I don't think I'll ever forget, to be honest. And my my ex-husband um, was also a police officer. So I was a police officer investigating domestic abuse, suffering domestic abuse at the hands of another police officer. And trying to compute that, I, I, I don't, I still don't know how. I still don't know how I got into that position. Um, it it gave me a very, very different perspective every time I dealt with a victim of domestic abuse, because there are a lot of stereotypes. There are a lot of um, prejudices overlaid on victims of domestic abuse. And as an empath, but now beyond that, I was also experiencing it myself. It was it was traumatic for me. I went through trauma every time I dealt with a victim of domestic abuse. Thank you so much for sharing that. I'm just, it's blow, you know, mind blowing. How did you survive that period of your life and your work concurrently? And how did you cope in those situations? I honestly don't know. I look back at that time and I don't know how I coped, how I survived. 
I think as a mother, there was an element there of, of pure survival of keeping myself as safe as I could, but also keeping my son safe. Um, there was that shield almost that you put on when you put on that uniform of, well, I'm now a police officer. I am the one that, that does the helping. So I have to put everything else in a box and I have to lock that away until the moment that it all comes bursting out again. And in that particular period, and, and this went on for years, I transitioned from uh, working in the investigations team into uh, the operational training team. So this is where I then went full circle and I went back to teaching in that I was in the training department and I was responsible for creating and delivering learning packages for continual professional development of police officers. And that could have been anything from a legislation change to teaching about modern day slavery, child abuse, um, anything you could think of, police related topic, I probably taught at some point. Rural crime. I remember teaching about the Deer Act and the Fisheries Act and all of these really bizarre scrap metal act, um, you know, all these these different things. Makes you realise that there are some there are some weird shit that goes through <laughs> Parliament, isn't there? Oh my gosh, <laughs> there is, and and some of them from you know kind of the eighteen hundreds. We read the law and thought, how how is this even still a thing? So it, it was such a wide variety of, of topics that I was teaching. And I think for me, I was having to put on a performance. And that's how I kept going. My persona at work was my performance. I would get in front of a class. I would be at home. I would be comfortable. And I was good. I was really good at what I did. And they hadn't had anybody like that. Because normally it is a police officer that then goes into the training department without any teaching qualifications, without any training qualifications. And you just put them in front of an audience and they have to rely on their professional judgment and their credibility as a police officer. So I was different. I was fresh and I was new and I was still fairly young as well, because normally it would be older generation police officers heading towards the end of their career that would do something like that. So I think putting on that front, putting on that performance is, is, is kind of what kept me going. But it was almost, it was all also at that particular point where the abuse really came to a head. And I left and I walked out. And after years of, of planning and plotting and imagining what life would be like when I walked out that door, I finally did it. It was nothing like I had planned. I walked out one day with my son. Uh, we didn't even have a change of underwear. We didn't even have our toothbrushes. I, I walked out my house and I never went back. And for, for people that have experienced domestic abuse, you, you know that it's about to get worse. Anything else that has gone on is nothing like what is going to come your way. And that's another misconception that I was having to deal with is I'd, I'd left, I'd walked out. My, my experience was starting to come out. People were starting to realise. Friends were coming out of the woodwork. And I, and I say friends very, very loosely because I was incredibly isolated in my relationship. It was only people that I saw at work that I would kind of count as friends. And it was when they started to come out saying, well, we knew he was bad news. We don't know what, we didn't know what you were doing with him. We didn't know why you stayed as long as you did. But they thought it was over. I'd walked out. I'd left him. That's it. I can start my life again. At that particular point in time, 
I was having uh, the new um, coercive control legislation was just passing through Parliament and was just coming to the attention of the police. And this was revolutionary, that you didn't have to rely on a violent act to prove domestic abuse. Um, It was a whole new way of thinking about domestic abuse. And I was having to teach that. So having experienced it, having gone through it, I was then having to educate other police officers on the new legislation and the practicalities of applying that legislation. And it was controversial. And police officers, as with the law, and as we kind of mentioned earlier on, people perceive the law as very, very black and white. You've broken it or you haven't broken it. Domestic abuse is is not like that. There there is a whole big area of grey in the middle. I then went from being a victim of domestic abuse to being a victim of harassment. So I was receiving... 25 to 30 messages every single day via text, via email from my ex-husband going from, I love you, come back, I'm sorry, to the worst insults you could ever imagine. And again, the mental toil of that. I was being told, well, block him. Don't read them. Well, I was in a really difficult position because we had a child together. So by law, he was entitled to complete and utter access to my son, who at that point was four years old, five years old. So how is he going to get that access? He's going to get that access via me. So I couldn't block him. I couldn't stop the communication. And it's like that dripping tap effect. Right, The first few messages, you might be able to put them aside. But after a while, and after the abuse that I'd suffered of, of having years eight years of being told I was fat I was ugly I was disgusting no one would ever want me I was useless anything I'd ever achieved in life was down to him you constantly get that effect and you start to believe it and and at that point I was believing it I was believing that I was worthless I was believing that I would be better off not here and it was only because of my of my child that I am still here because as a mother there is that one thing that stops you from going too far, from taking that final step. And that's that protection of of your child. When I was going through all of that, I was being harassed. I was trying to have my employer support me and I wasn't getting that support, yet I was still having to teach domestic abuse and still go through that. And again, I don't know. I don't know how. I don't know how I did it. And it came to a head one day and I lost it. I absolutely lost it in front of a class of people because a police officer started shouting at me and telling me that I was wrong about coercive control and that it wasn't a thing. And it was the woman making it up to use children against an estranged partner. Wow. Yeah. He verbally went for for me and I just thought at that point, I I can't do this anymore. I don't feel supported by my organisation. I have got a a soon-to-be ex-husband who is abusive, who is harassing me and no one is doing anything about it and no one is looking after me. So do you know what the only person that can look after me is me? And I started to look to, to leave it took another three or four years before I actually took the leap. To cut a long story short, I went through a criminal court uh, as a victim of harassment uh, with my ex-husband. 
He was acquitted because, again, the criminal justice system was not set up to support victims of coercive control. If I, I was told by an investigating officer, his exact words were, it would be easier if he had just hit you because at least we would have the physical evidence. So I, how can I help other victims of crime when that's what I'm receiving as one of them, as a police officer? Now, it is different now. Things have changed. They have wised up. So many measures are put in place now to, to help victims of domestic abuse within the police service, but it was too late for me. My trust had been broken. I, I needed to move on for my own my own sanity. But it did take another three or four years to, to be able to do that. And it was only due to an opportunity that presented my previous uh, second line manager retired and went to work um, for an aviation company in their learning and development department. And he was looking to expand his team. And he told me about it. And had he have not done that, I think potentially, well, I don't think I would still be in the police, but I definitely wouldn't be in the position that I am in now. And I wouldn't have survived and been able to move on in the way that I have. So I, I made that leap. I left and I left the secure pension. I left you know, the never being able to get fired unless I did something drastically wrong. So it was a pretty safe, pretty safe job. Um, I left all of that behind because I, I just had to get out. And if I look at that 12-year period from when I first started as a police officer, fresh-faced, wanting to help, wanting to change the world, to then where I left I was unrecognisable, absolutely unrecognisable. So it was it was one hell of a journey in that 12 years. I mean, it's incredible. I mean, that story alone is it's an incredible story for 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 so many wrong reasons um but is a testament to your uh, bravery strength and courage i think as well hannah and i i i really want to um thank you for sharing all of that because i think it's only by lifting the lid on some of the ugly truths of society that we start to normalize these kind of conversations and allow women to front up about their experiences and the things that have happened to them. And it's only by women like you speaking out about the situations that you've been in. And particularly when you yourself have been in a perceived position of power and privilege by being part of the quote unquote establishment, that that to hear that that is no protection will be a comfort to some women in some ways whilst also exposing that we have such a long way to go. Um, and I just really want to credit you for sharing all of that because I think it's incredible to hear and so, so, so important. Um, I wanted to chat more, a little bit more about your music career as well. Um, you mentioned that you had always been into music, that you were a music teacher. Your mom was into Amdram. Um, you are classically trained as a singer. Tell us a little bit about... Um, making it as a country singer and and about your your alter ego Lily Garland as well and how that took off where did that come from and how did you get started so interestingly that was connected to uh the experiences that I was going through whilst in those later stages of, of being in the police I had uh left my ex-husband we were going through or, or just going past the court case um, I had a lot of trauma inside me. And as a creative, as a musician, I use music as a form of 
therapy and my my mum was encouraging me um to to pick it back up again I'd I'd left it behind I hadn't done anything for so long because of the controlling nature of the relationship that I was in I'd let all of the music go and as you mentioned I I was classically trained I've done a lot of musical theatre it's been my in fact I was my mum was on stage whilst I was in her tummy um so you could say from you know almost the moment that I was conceived I was in the theatre in some way so I started to to explore it a little bit I I was asked to sing a song for my grandfather's funeral, which was, again, I don't know how I've done some of these things, but I sang Over the Rainbow um, and I put my my own slight spin on it because I found a Faith Hill version of Over the Rainbow. Um, and, and for those that don't know, Faith Hill is a country music singer, as a bit of a fan of country music because I'd, I'd enjoyed bands such as the Dixie Chicks when I, from the age of 18. So I'd always kind of listened and dabbled and gone back and forth with, with modern country. And I loved this version so much. And I sang it at, the, at my grandfather's funeral. And my mum asked me to go into a recording studio to record it. So I, I went to a local studio and I recorded the song and I loved it. I loved the experience. And I, they encouraged me to do more. The studio encouraged me to do more. So I started to record some other cover songs. I did some Carrie Underwood. I did some Miranda Lambert. I did some Dixie Chicks. All these real modern, but quite girl power country country songs. And I, I felt, found it so therapeutic. And I was connecting to the lyrics of some of these songs and thinking, my God, that's, that's how I felt. That's what I've been through that's the abuse that I've suffered these people are putting it into these songs and it's it's speaking to me and throughout my my life I've written song lyrics I've, I've never showed them to anybody apart from when I had to do my degree in music and I actually had to make some of my compositions public which was terrifying but I'd always written down lyrics and the this this particular studio also had a songwriting program and and we started to do some songwriting and I started to, to really put what I'd experienced into these lyrics. And then we started to turn them into songs. And I loved the process. I, I felt so comfortable doing it. And they, they, they then encouraged me to release those tracks. And gosh, that was terrifying. You know, these were my inner thoughts. These were things that that I'd never talked about, although I'm getting better at talking about my experience and it takes a long time. I'm nearly seven years past leaving that abusive relationship and it's only now that I can talk without breaking down. So it takes a long time. So this was really early on in that process. But I I played it to my mum, who's my number one fan and my biggest supporter, and, and she then played it to somebody else and she then played it to somebody else. And and before I knew it, people say, you need to release this. You need to get this out there because it will help people. It will inspire people. And then I wrote a song called Time to Fly. And it was a really upbeat song. And it was the title of my debut EP. And um, it was proper country because it was talking about getting my stick string. So taking my guitar and getting out on the road and going down the truck. But the message behind it was, do you know what? I don't need you anymore. I'm, I'm I'm stepping away from you. This is my time to fly. This is my time to let go of those things that have happened in the past and to realize how suppressed I was and how I'm, I wasn't myself. But now I can have that freedom. And, and that's what that song represented. And it kind of snowballed from there, really. So I, I released this EP, which was a five track EP 
of songs that I'd written, a mixture of upbeat and some slower ballads. But the, the key message behind it was this was my next chapter. This was me telling people that it's okay. Whatever you've experienced before, you are strong. You are incredible. You can move forward from that. And 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 that was, it was my therapy. It's probably quite expensive therapy because it's not cheap to be recording music and things. But I, I started a gig. I started to perform. I started locally. And then I went slightly further afield. And I've been lucky. I've, I've I've kind of toured around the country. I've supported American artists when they've come over and kind of been their opening act for them. Um, I've released, uh, I think it's three EPs in total. Um, the, the last one being called uh, uh, Rise Above the Ashes. It was all part and parcel of, of my next chapter, of me moving on from that abusive relationship. And the name Lily Garland, um, they're actually my middle names. So Garland is a family name on my mother's side. And Lillian was the name of my paternal great-grandmother who passed away when my grandfather was very, very young. So both significant, both taken from either side of the family, and I put them together. There's a nice synergy there because the Over the Rainbow had been originally sung by Judy Garland, which was the start of your singing career. Absolutely. And I didn't even make that connection until later down the line, because when I would we'd be giving my stage name across, I'd be saying Lily Garland, but Garland like Judy. Um, and, and it was, it was where, where I started with, with Over the Rainbow. And it's still one of my absolute favourite songs to sing. Um, but because of that point, when I started my music career, I was still in the police. And you couldn't put your real name on social media Criminals would find you, solicitors would find you. So it just works to create this alter ego. And that's the story that I gave everybody. The reality is, is I was creating a new person. I was creating a new me. I I couldn't perform under myself. I had no self-confidence. Whereas a little bit like Beyonce uses Sasha Fierce, I used Lily Garland. And it was what got me over that hurdle and allowed me to put on that alter ego and be this this confident singer strutting around the stage. And I've, I've been described as the country music version of Tina Turner. Wow. In that I, I strut, I throw myself around, I use the whole stage, um, and I love to rock out in a country way. And, and it allowed me to do that. Interestingly now, the period that I am now in my life, and, and because of COVID, I've pivoted again. So just before COVID, um, I was getting older. My son was getting older. I was in a new relationship. Uh, my now husband had, well, still has a child, but she was younger. It was so much more difficult to up and gig and travel the country and go to various different places. So I decided to set up my own country music festival down south um, because quite often country music festivals are very much up north. You might get a few in London, but you definitely won't get them south of London heading towards the coast. So very selfishly, because I didn't want to travel, I decided to make other people travel to me. And I created Country on the Coast, which is a three day music, country music festival held on a pier a historic pier um, over South Sea Beach. So I love that you just were like, I'm going to set up a festival. Let's just do it. I'm ready. I just want to have a country music festival. Bang, there's three days on a pier. Amazing. 
Yeah, done. I, I didn't just do one day. I didn't just do an evening. I thought, go big or go home. I can bring my all woman. of my favourite, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all of my favourite UK country music artists. I'm going to bring them to me and I'm going to have them perform. And at that point in my, I've dabbled in a lot of things. And I did two years as an Arbonne consultant for a network marketing company. And I learned so much about myself and I learned a lot about personal development, a lot about personal growth, which I very much needed at that period of my time, period of my life. I also learned a lot about branding and marketing and using social media to put yourself out there. And because of the music, I'd also been doing that as well for Lily Garland. I'd created this brand. So I thought, well, I'll just take all of that. I know that I can do that. I'm just going to create this three day country music festival and it was amazing. And we made a profit in our first year. Not a big profit, but a profit. And we were expecting to make a loss as a lot of events do. And, and it gave me a real taste for business and a real taste for entrepreneurship. And I loved it. And I love organizing and I love spreadsheets and I love Google Forms. And I love being able to put all of that information together and then watch something evolve in front of me that other people are going to enjoy. Um, but the, I, I'm, I'm now approaching 40 and I don't know where Lily Garland is going to go. COVID has stopped a lot of that music side of things. Part of me feels like I've outgrown her. I'm, I think I'm now, in the last year, I've been myself on social media. I've put myself out there. I haven't had to hide behind Lily Garland. So she'll always be a part of me. It's like I'm talking about another person. She'll always be a part of me. But I don't know what's next. I don't know where my country music career will go next. I do know the country on the coast is back this October for three days, which is super exciting. When I got put on furlough from my corporate job, so I'd moved into the aviation industry uh, two and a half years ago. I didn't rest on my laurels. I started my own business in coaching and mentoring mums to start up their own business and everything that I'd learned through the music, through the country music festival, through network marketing, through my corporate career, I channeled everything into creating a service that that took mums from having a hobby into to creating it into a hustle. And that's now been going a year and it's evolved. And I'm, I'm now working with one-to-one clients to increase their visibility, to increase their, their audience, their profit, um, and their confidence in in business, really. So everything I've done in life has kind of taken me to to this point now. It's amazing. So that business is called The Female Creative. Um, tell us a little bit about where people can find you, um, what you're up to and what you're kind of hoping for with the future with that, Hannah. So I have a website, www.thefemalecreative.co.uk, which holds all of my information, Um, because that's the other thing that I now apparently dabble in, is I have created all of my own websites for the country music, for my business, and I now also help my coaching clients um, with their websites as as well, because I I found I just love that little bit of design and that little bit of creative flair. So you can check out my website. I'm on social media, Instagram. uh, I am at the underscore female creative, the female creative on Facebook. um, And I offer a coaching and mentoring service one to one 
uh, where we can work on whatever you want to in your business, whether you are a brand new business. So I'm, I recently uh, worked with a lady who's also an L&D professional, but she wanted to be a celebrant do weddings, naming ceremonies. So we've set up her entire business. She launched last week. Um, I've also been working this month with a photographer who wanted to go into coaching and mentoring for photographers. So not, not just teaching them photography, she actually wanted to help them mould their businesses and run their photography as a business to increase profit um, and, and visibility. So we, we launched her last week. Um, I've worked with florist on her social media game I've worked with crystal healers calligraphy class experts gifting companies that do black personalized gifting um network marketers candle makers authors amazing so many yeah it's incredible it's incredible I love it I've been so lucky it's grown into a podcast So I launched my own podcast a few months ago, The Female Creative Talks, where I talk to uh, women about their entrepreneurial journey, their journey into business, their top tips um, for anyone wanting to start or wanting to grow their business. So I think for me, my focus is is to to keep growing and helping more people one-to-one, but also really develop the podcast as well, because I love it. I love podcasting. There's, There's something really amazing about it and being able to chat to all of these incredible women that I do um so yeah it's all on social media and on my website amazing and Hannah has just joined as one of the early members of the Skylark Collective which is very exciting she is a real champion of other women and I'm really really looking forward to getting to know her over the next 12 months um Hannah thank you so much for your time it's been such a pleasure to chat to you um do reach out to Hannah if you have any questions or you want to hear anything more about what she's been doing as ever um and we will be featuring her on our Instagram live as well so do look out for that Hannah thank you it's been such a pleasure thank you so much for having me it's been wonderful chatting to you that's all for this week if you've enjoyed this episode please to share it wherever you can on your own social media and if you found the podcast interesting or useful then do please tell a friend because we are always keen for new listeners if you can find it in your heart to rate and review the podcast on itunes or give us a shout out on your socials then we'd love you very much as it genuinely does help other people to find us We're on Instagram and Facebook at The Skylark Collective and our website is www.skylarkcollective.co.uk. See you next time.